know who was the governor? Clyde Rivius was the governor of Syria during that time. Very good. And they were going back for the purpose of taxes. Taxes? Very good. He's a deacon for a reason. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim was a father of Shatil, and Shatil was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuad, and Abuad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eluid, and Eluid the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And turn to Luke chapter 2. 857 in the Bibles that we've provided you. And in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that, the, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was a house in the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, who his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn child and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away and away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went and made haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
You may be seated. One of the things that I have been working very hard at, and I have yet to perfect it, is trying to figure out why people do what they do and say what they say. I'm a people watcher, which some of you should be, you should be very scared, because I'm watching you. You know, there, there's something that Laura and I do when we go on a family vacation, especially if it's just her and I, we will sit in the airport and we will people watch. And we will go, that was weird. Why did they do what they do? And we try to figure out their story. And a lot of times we just concoct a story and just go, I bet he's a salesman. Did you see how he talked with her? Did you see how he treated him? Did you see what's going on? Oh, he's definitely a salesman. What do you think? Is this guy married? Do you think she's married? What do you think, what's going on here? And we try to figure out what pe why people are doing what they do and saying what they say. We're the creepers in the restaurant. You know, you're, you're sitting in, in your little your area and you're supposed to be looking at each other and talking and all of a sudden I see my wife, her eyes kind of roll back. I go, what are you doing? Shh. I'm listening. <laughs> and we try to figure out the story of what's going on behind us. We're trying, I know none of you do this, right? <laughs> Liars, you do. We do the exact same thing. I, I, one of the things that I am trying to do as a husband who's been married for 15 years is try to understand my wife. It's a very large book if there were instructions, but it's trying to figure out why does Laura do what she do and why does she say what she says? What does she want for Christmas? I've got to be a student and learning. Why does she do what she does? The same goes when I was a, a fifth grade uh, teacher. Trying to figure out why these little gremlins, these 10 and 11 year olds would say what they say and do what they do. And I wouldn't be able to really put my finger on it until parent-teacher conference. Where I, I learned that there's such a thing called apple tree syndrome. The apple never falls far from the tree. And you go, oh, I get why Johnny talks this way. I see why he does this. I see why she says this way or why she cries or why he cries at these things. I get it now. I, you get a little glimpse into him by looking at the parents and you go, yes, I got it. But the one thing that I have learned in my, my years since I, I became a follower of Christ, I grew up in the church and became a follower of Christ with all my heart at the age of 19, and one of the things that I've learned is that God does not always do the things that we think that he should do, nor does he act the way that we think that he should act. A lot of times, you sit back and you go, what? Are you serious? Why would you do that? Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament, and you always are kind of shocked that God would do these things. He doesn't act in accordance with human wisdom. Somehow we think that if God was a math problem, we just have to plug in the numbers, and we've got them figured out. The reality is we're always shocked by how God works. You can see this clearly, very clearly, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We've taken the time to walk through the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1 and kind of target in on four individuals. 
We looked at Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and we looked at Bathsheba. And honestly, it's, it's kind of like, it kind of has a, a New Jersey feel. A Jersey feel? You know, it, maybe some of you have heard of Jersey Shore. And you kind of look at these people and you go, really? That's kind of seedy. That's kind of difficult stuff. And why would God choose to put Tamar into his genealogy? After all, Tamar was married to a man who was very wicked in the sight of the Lord. So wicked that God said, I'm done with you. You're dead. Happened again. Okay, he's dead. Finally, the fa- her father-in-law, Judah, said, listen, I don't want you to marry my youngest son. Why don't you go back to your house of origin, your family line, and start all over, and maybe when my son gets old enough, I'll send him on to you. In the back of Judah's head, he's going, I don't want her touching my son. My last son will be dead if she even gets near him. Tamar got tired of waiting around for Judah to come through with his promises. So what did she do? After Judah lost his wife and went through a period of mourning, Judah was going to go out on the town with his buddies. And Tamar, dressed as a prostitute, seduced him had sex with her father-in-law to gain the promises that were due to her. And she's in Christ's lineage. It's a story that we go, you've got to be kidding. But we're reminded that Christ came for all sinners of all types, even the manipulators. We, we saw in Rahab, it, it's a story, an amazing story of when the children of Israel were about ready for the second time to enter into the promised land and two spies were sent in. And where did they find their lodging? With, with Rahab. And Rahab was not just a fast food cook. She was not a housekeeper. She was not an industrial engineer. No, she was a prostitute by trade. She turned tricks, not just once, like Rahab, or like Tamar, it was her job. But yet, what did she do? She had heard what the God of Israel had been doing. And all of their people were in fear, and God was working in her heart in such a way that she says, I believe in the God of Israel. She placed her faith in the God of Israel and she was saved. She's included. A prostitute. A trick-turning prostitute was included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. The one who came on that incarnation night. But not only that, we see the story of Rahab. Rahab was very tame compared to everybody else. She just so happened to be a Moabite from Moab, which means that she was an outsider. She should not have been included in the people of God. She, she had no place in the promises that God has for his people. But yet, through the work of Boaz, a man who redeemed her by paying a price, he was a, a, a shadow type of Christ, Because of Boaz's redemption of Ruth, she's included an outsider 
is included in the family of God. Last week we looked at Bathsheba. It's a story of rape, of being used and abused, treated like a commodity by all pe- from all people. King David. She felt powerless to change her circumstances. She did not want to be a part of this. But yet, God chose to even use that incident to bring her into the family line. We saw that Jesus can take away this horrible shame of sin and give us the greatest honor as undeserving sinners to be called children of the King. If these were our family stories, if they were your family stories, you would try to keep them under wraps, wouldn't you? You would not want to be talking about Aunt Rahab. Nobody would want to talk about Aunt Rahab. Your parents would look at you and go, that's a name we do not speak. Nobody would want to. But we would much rather highlight the rich, the famous, the, the cousin or the uncle or the great aunt who has the place down in Tucson who is going to give you that place for an entire week or who's going to give you that amazing present who are, or you know you're going to get some kind of inheritance from them. They're the amazing one. You want to talk about them. You want to be about them. You want to introduce your friends and your neighbors to this person. But God does something extremely unconventional. David Turner in his commentary, said this, God's grace in Jesus the Messiah reaches beyond Israel to the Gentiles. Beyond men to women. Beyond the self-righteous to sinners. In saving his people from their sins, Jesus is not bound by race, gender, and say the last word, scandal. Jesus is not bound by scandal or messiness. And I I know none of you in here go, I I don't really have a scandal. You are a scandal. And I don't know if you really understand that. You you are a scandal. It's not because you stole your dad's car and took it on a joyride that one time. That's not the scandal. The, The fact that you are a sinner, born as a sinner, that God would save you makes it a scandal. The fact that people like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and and the like, and Bathsheba are included in the line of the Messiah sends a strong message about the pure and powerful grace of God. These people, really? And it shows a picture of God's beautiful, beaming grace. None of them deserved it. None of you deserve it. I don't deserve it. But somehow... If you are in Christ Jesus, you're on the list. Jesus came for the outsider. Jesus came for the outcast. And not only is is he not ashamed of identifying them, pointing them out, he's identified with them. These are my people. The lost, the brokenhearted, the scandalous, these are not, that, it's not only that group over there, they're my people. 
And for some of us, that should give you great hope that no matter how scandalous I feel my story is, how hopeless I feel, there's hope. And nowhere is it more clear than in the storyline, the birth story of Jesus Christ. The birth of Christ fulfilled all the promises that God, it, of God in such a way that it should just kind of blow our minds and leave us somewhat befuddled. Kind of a, what? What? Kind of reaction. Our cultural familiarity with the Christmas story causes us to even miss the unexpected wonder, the shock, the newness, and the scandal with, with which accompanies all these events. We miss it because we're caught up in a white Christmas. We're, we miss the wonder and the glory and the shock of the real nativity story because we want to have presence. We want to have family. We want to have peace in our family room. So we miss it. So I want you to imagine, if you will, and this is the farmer boy coming out. Imagine if you can. A dirty, dank, stinky barn full of animals. Any farmers here? Anybody? You know what I, that smell of a barn? It's kind of humid and thick. The smell of animal manure. Now close your eyes and take a deep breath of that through your nose. That's the environment that the Son of God was born into. That very environment. And this is the reality of the nativity. During Christmas, I would much rather have the smell of baking cookies or the fresh pine smell of a Christmas tree or the candy canes to the smell of manure any day. Think about it. But if we want a real true depiction of what the Christmas story is about, we ought to consider the scandal of the coming of Jesus Christ. It is scandalous. And we don't do scandals very well. Even think about, I remember growing up in a kid as a kid uh, in Iowa, and whenever the, the time for the Christmas pageant would come along, there was always kind of, uh, even in a Dutch subculture, there was kind of the sharp elbows would come out as to whose daughter would be Mary. She was kind of the prized uh, person because she got to hold who? Jesus. And so every mother really wanted their daughter to be Mary, dressed in blue and white, a kind of a glow about them, holding the baby child. Everybody's kind of essentially dreaming that I want my child to be like that teenage mom who found herself pregnant in a very suspicious way, whose life nearly fell apart because of it. But that's what really happened to Mary. A nativity play begins with smiles and carols and everybody singing those heartwarming traditional songs. But the real Christmas story started out with scandal, shame, and shock. Here's the scandal. Mary was a normal girl living in a nothing town called Nazareth, a little podunk town in the middle of nowhere in northern Israel. 
She was probably about 14 or 15 years of age. And she was engaged to be married to this man named Joseph, who was of the line of David. She was marrying up, wasn't she? But before Joseph could even touch her, she fell pregnant. Today, that might produce a wee bit of gossip about a, a pregnancy outside of marriage, but nothing more. But in those days, it would have been absolutely scandalous. They took marriage serious in Israel, so seriously that adultery could get you stoned to death. Stoned to death. And that's what Mary was faced with. Not just dirty and cutting dirty looks from other women or cutting remarks said underneath their breath from other women, but a lifetime struggle of loneliness and even the real eminent possibility of death. That, friends, was a scandal. But here's the shame. Imagine being Joseph. There aren't many things more humiliating than finding out that the woman that you are engaged to is sleeping around. And that's what the neighbors would have even assumed, that this young girl that was betrothed, that was engaged to be married, she's sleeping around. And she is so ashamed that what does she do? She even goes off to hang out with her cousin Elizabeth for some time. She leaves town. And it's amazing that Joseph that Joseph was prepared to split up quietly, not making even a public scandal about it. It's even more amazing, in the midst of all that shame, that he ended up staying with her. They don't mention that in Nativity plays. But then there's the shock. The shock is this. All of this is God's doing. All of it. I don't know how you imagine God. Maybe, maybe he's just some kind of uh, white-haired man sitting up in the sky handing out gifts and toys. Maybe he's some kind of all-powerful force who's quite frankly more interested, uh, more interesting, more interested in doing things that are big and grand rather than caring about the little things in your life. Maybe you view God as a vending machine kind of God, where if you just put in your coins of good works, you do enough, and you pull the lever, you push the button, and out comes your reward. That's my God. Or maybe he is some distant being who really has no idea what life is like here on our planet. But here's the God of the Bible. He is a God who personally gets involved. He gets his hands dirty. Who turns our lives upside down. Who doesn't act like we might expect. He's the God who came and lived on earth as a human. That's the big shock. Not that a, a teenage girl got pregnant and not that the father wasn't her boyfriend. Not that a young guy stuck around to, to help his girlfriend. 
even though he wasn't the father. No, the real shock is that the baby was going to be called the Son of God. Emmanuel. God with us. So who is this God? This baby was God coming to live in our history, in our timeline. This baby would be human, and Mary was his mother, and he would also be God. He is God's Son who existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit since the creation of the world and since eternity gone past and eternity forever. And here's a glimpse of who God is. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and He existed as this three-in-one in perfect love, in perfect harmony, in perfect relationship with Himself for all of eternity. And that sounds strange, and it is, but it's also exciting. Because if this God is all about love and relationships, then the universe that He has made will be about love and relationships, including the outsiders into a kingdom that was not originally built for them, but really intended for them. This kingdom is for them. It's not about power. It's not about possessions or just pointlessness. The God of love and relationships has made us to enjoy a life of love that lasts and relationships that work. And friends, that is a God worth knowing. That is a, friend, a God worth worshiping. And that's what God was doing when His Son was born to Mary. God the Son came to live on earth. And I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes, even as a pastor, to wrap my head around it. And I think that's okay to admit that the God of the universe chose to put on flesh dwell among us, live the perfect life in this messed up, screwed up world for me, for you. The God of the universe who knows and controls everything becomes a baby who needs changing, feeding, and burping. Sometimes we have this picture of a baby, you know, in the manger. He's just docile. There's no crying. We even sing a song about that, right? No crying that he makes? <laughs> Wrong. He is fully human. My, my mind struggles sometimes to just wrap around that. But then there's a lot of things that just kind of, kind of overload my brain. Let me give you an example. The fact that light can travel from here, from the sun to here, in 8.3 minutes. Sun light travels all that distance in eight minutes baffles my mind. That's, that, that is the speed of 186,000 miles per hour. And we have these hot, hot, hot 
humid days here in Chicagoland. And it has traveled all that distance. My mind can't understand how, how something can travel so fast. And for the record, I'm, science was never my, my strength. But I do know that it does travel at that speed. I know that. We'll never understand how God could travel so far. From his throne in heaven to the womb of a woman in Israel. You want to talk about distance? The sun is just like a heartbeat away compared to the distance of a holy God. Choosing to put on flesh, to dwell among us, to come in as a baby. And the angel said, he will be called the Son of God. God came to earth as one of us to live in the world that he created. So what will God as a human be like? What does he want to tell us? What did he come to do? At this point, Mary would have had only a vague idea. She had a brief encounter with an angel, and her husband surely had to share about his encounter with another angel. She had to be a good Jewish girl that understood some of the prophecies of this coming Messiah. But the night that he was born, things would start to become even more clear. When Jesus first came to the earth the first time, his eyes were not like the flames of fire and his face was not like the sun shining in its fullest strength like it talks about in the book of Revelation. You want to talk about a powerful kind of Christ? Look at the book of Revelation where he is just blazing. And despite the many Christmas cards that you have sent out, he wasn't glowing in Mary's arms. Anybody guilty? There was no glitter around Christ. There wasn't even a, a, a yellow-hued uh, halo around him whatsoever. He came in weakness. He came in vulnerability. And this baby is totally and completely dependent upon his mother for survival. Not only did Jesus come to rescue his people as a vulnerable baby, the setting of his birth reflected, hardly reflected, his power. The creator of the universe breathed his first breath, excluded from a normal room. It was like a barnyard. Inside of a, a house, kind of a guest house. And he was promptly laid where? Man, I have seen many Amazon.com kind of baby registries. I have seen some amazing cribs. He was not laid in any one of those. He was laid in a feeding trough. And his first visitors was not grandpa and grandma. His first visitors were not the great neighbors down the road who were bringing flowers. His first visitors were lowly, dirty, ceremonially unclean shepherds. And so why would God visit his people in this manner? Why would he do that? Why didn't he have the angels reveal the birth to the kings and to the, the, the scholars and the Jewish leadership at the temple? Why didn't he break in there? Why didn't God plan ahead to have a decent room reserved 
at least a motel six. Why? All these questions reflect the difference between our expectations and God's plan. The lowly and humble birth anticipated the complete humiliation and shame on the cross. So what can we take away from this? One, God always fulfills His promises, even if it sometimes does not happen in the way that we might expect or at the time that we might find it to be convenient. God is always faithful. But he is not a puppet or a, on a string or a customer service agent who is tasked with the responsibility of always making the customers happy. That's not our God. Our God, though, is one who breaks into our world in the most unconventional, mind-blowing kind of ways to redeem his people from their sins. Friedrich Buechner, in his book called The Hungering Dark, wrote this. Those who believe in God can never, in a way, be sure of him again. We all, I, I like to be sure of what God will do, right? How he'll act. But those who believe in God can never quite be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of man. I love that. That is, that, is, that is a story of the gospel. That's the God that I serve. You will never know how God will descend in his own desire to reach you. Ludicrous depths. It's ludicrous. In his wild pursuit of humanity, he will do anything. He'll move heaven and earth to redeem his people. He goes on to say this, and this means that we are not safe. That there is no place where we can hide from God. There is no place where we are safe from His power to break in and recreate the human heart. Isn't that good news? Because it is where He seems most helpless that He is most strong. And just where we least expected Him that he comes most fully. This is our God of scandalous grace who, who will use scandal and shame and shock. No matter what the, the sh scandal, shame, or shock is in your life, the stuff that you repress, that you hide, and you go, nobody should ever know this. God seems to always break the rules and breaks into our, our world. And today, he does the knock and says, I'm here. Will you allow me to break into your world? I'm here. Will you, like all these women listed in my genealogy, will you by faith receive me? 
Or will you shut the door and say, no, I, I don't need that. I'm self-sufficient. I'm pretty good myself. You should see the tasks that I can accomplish. I'm a pretty good husband. Just ask my wife on a good day. And God goes, still not good enough. You see, God chose to put on flesh and dwell amongst us for self-righteous people like me. People who think they have it together. And he breaks in and says, I came for you, Paul. He chose to identify with me. Even so that when I suffer, he understands. When I struggle, he goes, I understand. And I came for that. I don't get it, God. Why did you do this? I know. But I came for that too. I came for your brokenness. I came for your self-righteousness. And just like David Turner said, and I'll, I'll, I'll do the quote, unless, Grace, you can go all the way back, all the way back, that first quote. God's grace in Jesus the Messiah reaches beyond Israel to the Gentiles, that's you, beyond men to women, beyond the self-righteous to the sinners, in saving his people from their sins, Jesus is not bound by race, gender, or your scandal. Friends, this is what we celebrate this morning. And I know in about 15 minutes, you are going to find yourself either grabbing some cookies upstairs, having some nice, uh, pleasant conversations, or you're going to be rushing out to go off to your family meal, and we're going to quickly forget this. He came on a cold night in a steamy, dark, dank, manure-filled place for you. And he lived the perfect life that you could never live and he gave his life as a sacrifice so that you may have life. If we could celebrate that today, tomorrow, and the next 365 days, become people of the incarnation, we are actually making progress. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, you have come in ways that are we, we just don't understand. For people that are undeserved, who don't deserve your grace and your mercy. But yet it is your kindness, Lord. As we see in Jesus Christ, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. So God, we, we pray right now, Lord, that you would forgive our sins. The things that we know we have done wrong and the things that we are unaware of, the things that we have committed by action and the things that we have committed in our hearts. Lord, uh, 
We ask that you forgive our self-righteousness that think it, because we think that we're good enough, that we've achieved enough, we've earned a place. Lord, would you forgive our self-righteousness? And Lord, even forgive our self-reliance of becoming our own gods. Lord, may we become people of the Incarnation who are not afraid of scandal, shame, or shock, but that we allow you, our God of scandalous grace, to break into our hearts and our world. May we be people, a church of scandalous grace that reaches out to the most unlikely people in our world our spouses, our children, our co-workers, our neighbors, the stranger along the way. May we be like our God of scandalous grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.